I am so thankful to be here and to have you here on this uh, Academy Awards Sunday here in, in our world, but especially here in Southern California, and uh, to tell you how important I feel that those of you who are serving in the arts and in the entertainment industry, what a high calling that is. Not an easy calling, not an easy calling, but I hope we can be a great church family to you as uh, you continue to serve him where God has put you. I'm also so thankful to be here with the uh, First Chinese Baptist Church, all of you uh, from L.A. uh, and all the guests who have come as well. Uh, Sometimes I've talked about this. In our lifetime, God is drawing to himself through Jesus Uh, people of Chinese heritage all over the world in unprecedented numbers. Perhaps the greatest growth in the church, not only in China, but in what I sometimes call the Chinese diaspora, whether you find people of Chinese heritage in Europe or in Africa or in South America or here in the own U.S., God is doing a work uh, to draw people to himself. So I feel like we've had a little foretaste of heaven as we were able to sing praise to our God together and worship him together. So welcome Welcome to our church family, and Ray and Jill, welcome home. We send you away on Tuesday, but I'm so glad you're here today as well. And we come uh, today uh, in a week in which we're fairly deeply into a series of messages that I'm calling the story of our faith. We're looking at the most essential elements of that faith, the story that God gives us in his word of what we believe. Now, some of you may not remember this. But I have said at the very heart of that story of our faith uh, that we find here in the Bible is one word. Do any of you remember what that word is? Gospel. Uh, The gospel is God's good news. So at the very heart of this message that God gives us, that's found in the scriptures, is good news that comes to us from God. And today, as we come to a two-week series, we look at the one who is the heart of that good news. First, the person of Jesus, and next week we're going to be looking at the work of Jesus Christ. And it gives me the opportunity to stop for just a few moments and address a question that every time, especially when I used to speak at uh, a lot of university campuses, every time I talk about the Bible's message being good news coming from God himself to us, I have to address a certain pushback question that comes in different ways, but essentially it's this, well, if it's good news, it's not the kind of good news I really want to have. Can't I pick out the kind of good news I want? The real question is, what does this good news of the Bible that says God is going to use everything to glorify his name have to do with what I'm facing in my life? And the challenges and difficulties I have with relationships or with finances or with health are a thousand things. And so some people feel that there is complete disconnect between the preacher getting up here and saying, the heart of the message we bring you is good news and the bad news that people are experiencing. Does that make sense to you? To set the stage for the message, I've been thinking about some Sprint Mobile commercials. I don't usually do this, but I thought it might set the stage to let you see because those commercials sort of have a person like a physician saying, I have good news, but speaking to a person who's experiencing bad news and the person doesn't see any connection between the two. I'll show you just one of them. show you just one of them. Uh, Doc, I just got your email. I'm out for the season. (laughs) Don't worry about that. I switched to Sprint's $69.99 plan, so I get unlimited emails. 
What, what does that mean? It means I'm dropping you from my fantasy team, that's for sure. What does that mean about my knee? Oh, your knee's totally shattered. Did you see how hard that guy hit you? I, I don't want to see... Hey, 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 relax. Not costing me any extra. Only Sprint gives you unlimited text, web, and calling to any mobile for just $69.99. Sprint, the now network. I am telling you, there are many people in this world that when your pastor gets up and says, the heart of the message of this church is to bring God's good news to us, they think just like this. What does that say about what I'm experiencing in this world? God's saying, I'm going to glorify my name, and we're experiencing all this bad news. Now, does the Bible have anything to say to us about that? And today I want to take you to one of the most remarkable texts in the Bible. It's a series of stories found in the Gospel of Mark, running between chapter 4, verse 35, near, nearly to the end of chapter 5. Uh, back when I was doing my graduate work a, a long time ago, I was sitting in Cambridge, England, uh, studying the Gospel of Mark. That was what I was doing for my dissertation. And doing all the heady intellectual work of trying to do a, a literary analysis of the book. When I started reading these stories back to back to back to back. And God just spoke into my life and showed me the, the way that God often talks about this one who is the heart of our faith. I'll show you the way we have put it at the beginning of our statement of faith. The fourth article begins this way. We believe that Jesus Christ is God incarnate. We believe that Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man. One person with two natures. And what we're stating in our statement of faith is that God's good news, God's gospel is revealed in history supremely through the person of Jesus Christ. But if we say, in what way does this Jesus make a difference in our daily living? The Bible does it usually by showing the way that Jesus encounters people in real life situations and in history. And that's what happens here in the Gospel of Mark. What I'm going to try to show you in the few moments that we have is a, a series of people who are going through times where it just seemed like life was completely out of control. The, kind, the worst kinds of bad news that could be imagined. And how Jesus brings good news into those situations. And at least this I want us to see. That for those of us who have said we are followers of Jesus, the first step that Jesus' followers have always taken when they're looking for good news in the midst of a bad news world. So first we're going to be looking at what I call the situations of helplessness. Ready to look at them? Situation number one. It's found in Mark chapter 4, verses 35 to 41. And it's, I call it a natural disaster. A natural disaster. I, I'm guessing that most of us going to a 9 o'clock service know this story. We, we learned it in church. The disciples were out on the Sea of Galilee. Uh, and and, and a, a, a big storm comes up. In fact, I love the way it is put in the NIV, in which it says a furious squall comes about. You can picture the disciples being in the boat and the waves coming up over the boat. They think that they're not going to be able to survive. Um, perhaps I'll just tell you this. Uh, in the ancient world, especially the Middle East, uh, the sea or the ocean was viewed as the place that they could not control. You can read about it in the Psalms or in the book of Isaiah. It's the place where great sea creatures like the Leviathan lived. People were terrorized by a storm at sea. So you can picture that that's the situation that they were in, in a place that seemed out of their control. I tried to think about um, what that would be like in our day. 
for those from the first Chinese Baptist church, it would be like you walking into our, our sanctuary and one of the ushers saying, oh, go ahead and come on in. Uh, but you sh- probably should, you should know that our church sanctuary is filled with radioactivity. You can't see it, so don't worry about it. Or, or, or perhaps it is filled with germs and bacteria. Yeah, every week two or three people die, but don't worry about it. You, you can't see it. Can you imagine if somebody said that to you and you were sitting here, that the, the, uh, the terror and the fright that even we in a 21st century world would have? Well, that's the situation that was here. You have to envision then the disciples being in a situation where they felt like this is out of our control. There is no hope for us. They felt quite literally helpless. Do you see it? Situation number two. It takes us to um, chapter 5, verses 1 to 20. I, I've, I've understated it. I've called it a mental disturbance. Do you know this story? It's a story about a, um, a violent madman. Uh, Jesus is on the, the Sea of Galilee. He sails over to the, uh, uh, to the Gentile side to the region of the Gerasenes, and he is met there by a man who comes out of the tombs. Uh, for those of us who have been here on this series, we who are human, made in God's image, a big part of that is that God has always lived in relationship, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and when he made us, he, did, he made us so that it wasn't good for us to be alone. Do you remember that? We were made to live in relationship with other people. This man was out of relationship. He couldn't live with living people. He could only live among the dead because nobody could control him. He was completely out of control. Uh, and, and in fact, even the, the most powerful chains that they had available to them were not strong enough to hold him. He could simply break them with the strength of his hands and his feet. And he couldn't control his own life either. Night and day, the Bible will tell us. He would cry out and he would cut himself and beat himself with stones. Uh, Therapists, psychologists who are here, you know that we have this growing phenomenon of self-mutilation, especially among uh, high school and college students. You're aware of that. And what most therapies are telling us is that underneath all of this is is a life that feels out of control. And this is one thing. This is one part of a person's life that that young man or woman feels like they can control. And in some ways, I think that's what's happening right here. Here's a man whose whole life is out of control. He can't control it himself. And so what he he resorts to, the only thing he can control is hurting himself. Now I'll tell you, even though this man um, was there and we would try to diagnose him, I I wondered what what would we say about him? I I, I guess we would say he has a disintegrated personality type. Do do you think? I know counselors who are here, we would say that uh, this is some sort of severe psychosis. But the Bible tells us that there's something more at work. It tells us that demons are at work in the life of this man. A supernatural power that goes beyond the understanding and the experience, at least outward experience, of most, of most human beings. But the way I want us to see this man is to see in him something that all of us have experienced, perhaps not to that same level, but times in which our own emotional makeup feels out of control. The anxiety is so great that we cannot find peace. Have you ever been there? I'm guessing that most of us have been there at one time or another, and perhaps you've come to church sensing that. Now, I want us to see a real human being in this man, made in the image of God, whose life is completely out of control. He was a man just like the disciples at sea, who could not find peace, and it felt hopeless. Situation number three. 
is a physical sickness. It takes place in between another story. It begins with verse 25 to verse 34. It's a woman who was chronically sick. Look at verse 25. A woman was there. This was in Capernaum, the other side of the lake again. She had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. Think about it. She had suffered a great deal, though she was under the care of many doctors. And in trying to find help, she had spent all that she had. And, and yet, in spite of getting better, instead of getting better, she only got worse. Now, when I read this with my 21st century eyes, uh, it's pretty clear to me that her problem was gynecological in nature, right? This bleeding that's going on. And if that's true, which it almost certainly is, it meant that her problem was not just a physical problem. She also had a social problem. Because women who had this problem in the ancient world were outcasts. They were just like lepers. She should not have been in a community, in a public setting, when she had this problem. And she'd had it for 12 years. In other words, even though she may have not have been demonized, like, like the man in, in verses 1 to 20, she had the same problem. Uh, she, was, she had a physical problem that could not be healed and a social problem where she was cut off from the people that she wanted to have relationships with. And nobody could help her. She had gone to every doctor and now she had no money left. In other words, what I want you to see in this woman is a woman just like the men at sea and just like that demoniac who was there in the tombs. I, I want you to see a woman in our world whose life was fully helpless in terms of human help and hope. And then the, the fourth... To me, it's the most poignant of all, and some of you who know me, you'll know why. I've simply called it a family-fearing death. It's told in two stages, chapter 5, verses 21 to 24, and then again, verse 35 to 43. It's the most moving of all of these difficult situations, and it is a father who is grieving the pain of his child. Look at verse 22. One of the synagogue leaders named Jairus, came and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. He pleaded earnestly with him, my little daughter is dying. Please come. I mean, there could be a thousand stories told like this, but I, I think that of all of the pain that we experience in this world, there is nothing more pain-filled than when we as parents see our little children dying, and especially when they come to a point of death. There's just something that cries out inside of us, isn't there? Those of you who have experienced this, many of us have in this church. We, we just say, this isn't the way it's supposed to be. If death has to come, I should have gone first. Everything inside of us cries out. Can't you feel this, whether, whether you're a parent or a, or, or a child? Can't all of us feel this, the, the, the dry throat the father must have had? The, the, the tears that were coming to his eyes as he comes to Jesus and he just says, my little daughter is dying. And he says, Jesus, you've done so much. Can't you do something? And yet when you read the story, you find out that Jesus waits too long because other people who know Jairus come running up and says, just leave this so-called prophet alone because your daughter has already died. I, I just feel like crying when I say it. Uh, uh, and death, I mean, that's such an ending. Really, in this situation, like, like the, the, the man at sea, like the man in the tomb, like the woman who was so sick there in Capernaum,
for this father once death had come. There was no hope. So when you put it all together, you just see, when you read this, I didn't know quite, I've, I've been thinking about this so long. How can you preach a whole sermon on this much of the Bible? But when you just, I want us to see one story after another after another. Because in each one of them, we see those kind of bad news situations where when we come and talk about the Bible being God's good news speaking to us, we ask ourselves, what good news can God bring to people like this? What good news does He bring into situations where life is like this? When people feel like, I've tried to say, what would I feel like if I were one of these people? I think the feeling would be like falling off of a cliff, plunging, you see the rocks below. You're reaching out, just grasping, hoping there will be something you can hold on to and can find nothing. And maybe even you begin to, to hope that the Superman stories are true. <laughs> and that someone or something will come swooping up in underneath us to provide help and rescue. Now to the second part of my message to us. What did they do? I want you to see that they brought Jesus into the situation. But I want you to see in each one of them how they did it. Because it's probably, if you took a class from Pastor Waybright on how we're supposed to pray, probably none of them would have passed the course. They, they didn't pray in the prescribed way that Bible scholars and theologians tell us we're supposed to pray. So probably God won't listen to those prayers, right? Let's look at it. The prayers for help bringing Jesus into the situation. We go to the first one, the minute C. And I've called what they do is an accusing plea in the midst of their frustration. In the, in the midst of the storm, the, the thing that I see there is when they come to Jesus, it's not a very humble prayer. They actually make an accusation. They go down, he's asleep. They shake him. And in verse 38, teacher, don't you care? Uh, this, is, this is the one through whom they were made. This is the one who had shown his love for people. What an accusation. Impudence, right? He, he won't even talk with them now. Just get back upstairs. But I, I'll tell you, any of us who live life, we know that when that, that pressure is on, when things are out of control, the first thing we often do is lash out at the people we care the most about. Spouses, we do it to one another, right? Uh, children do it to parents, parents do it to children. Sometimes we do it to God. Uh, we, we, we last, don't you care? Don't you see what's happening? I'll, I'll tell you one of the most encouraging things. You're with me here, aren't you? One of the most encouraging things about being a follower of Jesus is that when we are feeling this frustration, we come to Jesus and it may not be the perfect way, it may not be the way we, we write about in our schools and so forth. That God knows us and cares about us. It shows me something of the heart of Jesus. That, that sometimes when we say silly things like this, don't you care? What we really mean is, can't you do something? And so Jesus does something. He, he got up, verse 39, like, rebuked the wind and spoke to the waves. Peace, be still. And the wind died down. And it was completely calm. Only one word for that. Power. It's the power that we see in Genesis chapter 1. That when God creates, He speaks a word and everything comes into existence. So things completely outside of human control, Jesus speaks. 
and it obeys, but it is power, God's power, used on behalf of people who are hurting. Fully God, Jesus. Fully man, one living life with people. In the boat with him. Do you see this? The Bible shows us what we believe, shows us what difference that can make. Because the one whom we follow has the capability, being fully God, to make a difference. But has the heart, because he has lived life, he is in the boat with us and cares and knows what is happening. And he's able to turn a situation from helplessness and hopelessness into peace and hope. Hallelujah. Number two, second prayer. I just call it a defensive longing. Uh, What we see with this demoniac, chapter 5, verse 7. He shouts at the top of his lungs. What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? Now, I've asked myself so long, what on earth did he mean by saying that? Was this a real prayer? Was this just a demon shouting through him? What is this? One of the things that's interesting for me is that he knows who Jesus is. If you read through the Gospel of Mark, I had Ray and Jill read this through. Human beings don't know who Jesus is. Even the disciples are dense as rocks about who Jesus is. But this man with the demon inside, he, he knows who Jesus is. Son of the Most High. And it's so consistent with what I have seen when I, as a pastor, have visited emotional wards or mental wards. There is such a spiritual interest. It, it's often so off-kilter. People sometimes think that they are Jesus, you know. And so this is so consistent with what I see to be real in my own. But what I love about this too is that whatever is going on here, Jesus sees through the words to the longing inside, what will you do with me? You know what he does, don't you? There were these pigs over there on, on the hillside, herd of swine, making pigs of themselves, eating over there. Jesus then casts the demons out from the man into the pigs. They go hog wild. They become the first deviled ham. I'm, I'm looking for Chris. She warned me not to say such silly. I wanted to, I wanted to drum roll for that. You know, I'll have to say this, this passage has led to so many questions. Why was it better to cast them into pigs when there are other things that might have happened? What on earth happened to those demons after the pigs drowned? I'll tell you, now that John, do you want to preach a sermon? I'll let you answer those questions next week. And I will quite frankly tell you, I don't know. And, and I, the Bible doesn't explain to us some of these questions we have. And I think there was uh, probably many reasons for it, but one of them is this. The Bible wants us to know that there are realities in this world that operate beyond our understanding. It certainly goes beyond my own experience. And it wants us to know that there is one who came into this world that it is not outside of his understanding or outside of his control. So that he speaks a word into this man. The demons have to leave. And then amazingly, verse 15, you and I would be just as amazed to walk in and just see him sitting here, right here, perhaps next to John and Sassy. What do you think? What would that be like in our day? Jim and Karen, would it be like 
coming to church on Academy Award Sunday and having Lady Gaga sitting next to <laughs> John wearing a business suit, not, not her food, and uh, singing hymns with us before the Academy Awards. Would it be like Charlie Sheen showing up this week at church, sitting there with the producer of his show, arm around him singing hymns together? <laughs> we, we may smile about it, but the fact is that this is what Jesus can do in a life, and one of the reasons why we want to send people into all of the places of this world. Because when Jesus was brought into the situation, a man whose life seemed out of control was brought under control. And he experienced the shalom of God. Hallelujah. It means there is hope, amen, and help for us and for those God brings across our paths. Let's look at the third. I call it a wish-filled grasp. This, the sick woman, the way she came to Jesus is almost embarrassing to us. Look at verses 27 and 28. When, when the woman heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and she touched his cloak because she thought, if I can just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Now when you read this, this is just superstition, isn't it? Just superstition. I still find us kind of operating this way. When Sometimes I walk around the neighborhood and people find out I'm a man of the cloth. And they kind of want me to touch their heads and do a blessing. It, it still happens. Or it's, it's you st- kissing the Blarney Stone, throwing salt over our shoulders, staying away from a black cat. I mean, we still... But to come into church and to see this sort of thing happen in the Bible, Jesus is surely going to first say, you don't have to do it that way. We don't believe in superstition. He'll put her down first. Teach her right. And then, now pray right and maybe I'll help you. I'm just... Once again, it gives me an insight into the person whom we follow that he sees through the superstitious grasp and he sees the faith that is there and he says to her, Sister, your faith has healed you. Not the superstition, but the faith evident in what she did. And in doing so, Jesus does what no people could do. And and there's one word for it. It's, It's used there in verse 30. It is power. The power of God to bring His compassion. Because he lived life with people. He was fully man. But to bring his power to bear upon the bad news of this woman. Praise be to him. And then finally, the uh, father, Jairus. I just call it a desperate cry. The most pointed of all, verse 23. Jesus, please come. And Jairus falls down on his knees in front of this young rabbi. Now let me just say this too. In the ancient world, when a person was as powerful as Jairus was. And as a synagogue leader, he would have been one of the most powerful people in his community. One thing you don't do is show weakness. A lot of articles about this. It still is true as you look at what is happening. In the, in, if you want to understand Northern Africa and Middle East, a part of what you see in the dictators is they can't show weakness because somebody will come in. You'll see the relevance of this. So this is something he should not have done. I, you can almost imagine it would be more like this. Jesus, you know, I'm a synagogue ruler around here, and if you'll do something for me, I can help your reputation. No, no, no. We see him humbly falling on his knees in front of this young rabbi. Please help. Please help. And it looked like Jesus had waited too long. And yet one of the reasons why is this to show us again that even death itself is something that he can overcome 
Because by a word, he doesn't do it like faith healers do in our day. We have to do it in big public and then take an offering. He goes and he, he leaves everybody behind. He just goes into the room all by himself speaking her language. He just tells her to get up and walk. And she does. And she lives. The power of God that is greater even than the grave. The power to be able to turn a grieving parent into someone whose life again has hope. Exercised through one who understood the pain of people whose loved ones are facing death. I've asked myself often, why did God inspire Mark to write this story where back to back to back to back we have people in real human need? I'll tell you, you just read it back to back. to back. The reason I wanted to do it today, because I find it to be so powerful. It, it is to say to us that different from those uh, commercials, like the one I showed you, that, that it feels like God's good news has no relevance to our lives. It is to say to us that God's good news comes to us because the one who came was, yes, fully God, but he's also fully human and he understands all that we experience because he experienced it himself. Why do you think your pastor wanted to preach this today? I, there's perhaps so many reasons. But I have one very simple uh, longing for us as a church family. And that is, that is that we will learn to do what the, the believers in the Bible did and what our brothers and sisters around the world who usually have gone through much more difficult times than most of us have ever experienced, what our brothers and sisters around the world and all through history have always done. That when they go through times that seem hopeless in terms of human perspective, the first thing they have done is simply turned in childlike faith to Jesus. Not childish. That the first thing that we do is not to try to figure it out or, or to bring just human means to bear upon the situation. But I want to call us back to the kind of faith that I see among my brothers and sisters all around the world. I think sometimes when we have so much and uh, we understand uh, medical practices, we understand psychological processes, we start thinking all of those are the places where we're going to find help when everything seems to be out of control. But followers of Jesus have understood who Jesus is so that they always know that the first thing that we are to do is to come to him. In the light of these four stories, can I show you the way that we're putting who we think Jesus is in our statement of faith? Just look at it. Here's what we believe about him. That Jesus Christ is God incarnate. Do you know that word? God in flesh. God who came here fully God, fully man. One person, but with these two natures, divine and human. That, that Jesus, who in history was Israel's promised Messiah, was conceived through the Holy Spirit. He was born into this world through the Virgin Mary. He lived. But when he lived, he lived a sinless life. He died, crucified under Pontius Pilate. He arose bodily from the dead. He ascended into heaven. And right now, he's still at work. He sits at the right hand of God the Father as our high priest and our advocate standing to support us. (laughs) 
I was afraid if I just read that statement to us, we would say, ho-hum. What does that have to say to where I live? I tell you, it has a lot to say. And he wants us sometimes to come to him and say, Lord, I need your help. I don't know if I'm praying in the right way, but I now know it, it doesn't really matter. I just am going to fall before you. Here is my heart. Here is my life. Please come. Please help. Now, before we go, I see our times about John. I, I do have to give us two quick qualifications. Sometimes when he steps in to our, to our situation, he will use natural processes to do his work. In other words, sometimes he will do his work through, uh, through the hand of a surgeon, uh, through the medical uh, uh, medicines that can be provided, through the psychological therapies that are there. God, in other words, I, I'm not saying just trust Jesus and throw your medicines away. You've heard me, right? Now, I wanted to say that, though I didn't think I really had to. Not to most of us. Because at Lake Avenue Church... There aren't many of you here who would go home and say, the pastor told us just to trust Jesus and throw our medicines away. That's not our problem. Not for most of us. Our problem is to simply trust Jesus again. Our faith has been in all those things instead of in Him. I'm afraid, and I, I look in the mirror when I say this, so I'm not just pointing my finger at you, right? I'm pointing at myself. We who claim to believe in this kind of Jesus, to easily become what I call practical agnostics. Last, week somebody, last night somebody commented on that, because I've been to school so long. Practical agnostics. Agnostics, you're not quite sure that you really know that there's a God. Well, we're not really that. We've come, you wouldn't come to 9 o'clock service if you didn't think that there's a God. But practically speaking, we live as if we don't really believe it. So that whenever these kind of situations come, we try to find a solution ourselves. And even when we pray, sometimes the only thing that we feel like we can pray is God guide the hand of the doctor. And that's a good prayer. But I'm telling you, God can work in many more ways than that. And I want you to know that, that He will use natural processes because that's a part of His creation too. Know that. There are no medicines that stand outside of what God has made. So we can give praise to Him when He heals that way. But I want you to know that we need to learn to simply come to Him first and say, Lord Jesus, I give this situation to You. I'll trust You. Till I see Your hand, I will obey You. But my first thing is I'm going to give it to You. Second qualification that I want to have is that when He steps in, He may work in a different way from what we would want and maybe in a different timing from what, almost always in a different timing from what we would want. And I thought about this. I was thinking about the book of Habakkuk. Do you know that book in the Old Testament? They were in a bad news situation. They cry out to God, help us, help us, help us. So God does say, okay, I'll help you. I'll send the Babylonians. No, not that way, they say. <laughs> They're worse than we are. You see, we, we still try to take control. I want you to help, but I want you to do it my way. God does wonderful things there. It just wasn't what they expect. You know, don't, don't you, that Chris and I once prayed the same prayer that Jairus prayed for a dying child. But he worked in a way different from what we see here. Uh, if you ask me to explain why, 
I cannot. But I tell you, over the years, I have learned that God is still good. And he keeps telling me, you know, that even that problem has been overcome by the resurrection of this one who is the heart of the good news. Continue to trust me until your faith turns into sight. Because the Lord Jesus, whom we know, has the power to change hopeless situations into hope-filled situations. Because he's not just fully God, but also fully, fully man. Have you ever seen how the Hebrews writer put it? For this reason, Jesus had to be made like us. Hebrews 2, 17 and 18. Fully human in every way. In order that he might become a merciful and high priest in service to God. And that he might be able to make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted. He is able to help those who are tempted. Atonement. Um, the deepest human need. See, I've talked about all sorts of bad news situations, but the ultimate bad news situations is that you and I, on our own, have walked away from God. We've been made to know Him. Nothing else is right. unless. But, but we have sinned, all of us. And... Um, God is perfect and holy. Where can we find help for that situation? Atonement. At, at one-ment. There's only one who can take us and bring us to make us one with God again. Do you, do you see this? Fully God, fully man. Uh, we've seen in, in articles 1 and 3 that you and I are made in God's image. So when He made us, He inextricably has connected uh, us with himself, making us in his image. But when we walked away from him, he came. He came seeking after us and took on human flesh, became fully human. So now he has inextricably and eternally tied himself to us. The, the only human being able to stand between us as sinful people and, and a perfect holy God and bring us and make us right with God. He had to be this. And that's who He is. He lived, He alone lived the life we should have lived that we haven't. And then died the death we should die because of our sins but don't have to because He did. And that all of us who place our faith in Him are made one with God. Our ultimate human bad news finds that good news coming to us. So I just want to tell you, I don't know what you're going to face this week, but I'm quite sure that the question that Jesus asked the disciples in Mark 4.40 will be questions that come to you and me again and again. Why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? Why are you afraid? Didn't you hear my word at Lake Avenue Church on Sunday morning, who I am? Do you still have no faith? And where we say, I'll trust you, I want you to hear him say to you the very same words that Jesus said to Jairus. Don't be afraid. 
believe. It's a pretty simple message, isn't it? I want us to leave this place trusting God and living for Him because God's good news, His gospel, is revealed in history supremely through this person. This person, our Lord Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory. Amen and amen.